Songwriters are very special people. They're the ones who battle with themselves and suffer through an amazingly creative process that most take for granted. When you listen to the songs that Stephen Bishop has written over his career, you find an honesty and transparency that has allowed him to deliver hits such as On and On and Save It for a Rainy Day. Down in Jamaica they got lots of pretty women. His career actually began as a songwriter long before he wrote songs for himself. In fact, one of his first collaborations was with Art Garfunkel, who discovered his songwriting and vocal talent and invited him to sing and also contribute two tracks to his legendary Breakaway project. He has penned songs for Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Steve Perry, Kenny Loggins, The Four Tops, and also Pavarotti. Widening the body of his work, he sang the hit theme It Might Be You from the movie Tootsie, and also has written and sung on 13 other films, including Animal House and White Nights, from which he was nominated for two Grammys and an Oscar for his song, Separate Lives. Inside Music Cast welcomes a gifted songwriter, Stephen Bishop. Hey, Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Hi there. Hey there. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Stephen, when I think of uh, your music, your career, and your collaborations, for some reason, somehow, I don't see you as a, a young clarinet player <laughs> who uh, who was aiming to become a history teacher. Uh, today, do you have any regrets on not becoming a professional clarinet player? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> life I could have led, a Benny Goodman life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I, you couldn't get girls, you know, back in high school. <laughs> Uh, with the clarinet. I, I would like to play <laughs> clarinet in the lunch quad, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, some of the nerdy girls would come over, but I couldn't get the hot ones, you know. <laughs> and um, there was this one girl, Bernadette Tarantino, who was, like, really awesome. <laughs> and she, she would just, like, you know, totally ignore me. And then I got an electric guitar that my brother gave me, <laughs> and I, I took it to school, and I would be, like, there in the lunch quad with my electric guitar, and and all of a sudden she drifted over and she was like, oh, you play guitar? You That's know, right. and that was my, my signal, <laughs> you know, I just, I thought, oh, I gotta, I gotta keep playing guitar here. <laughs> so what kind of guitar did your brother buy you? Do you remember what kind Probably of was? Probably this one uh, that he bought at Udemart back then uh, in San Diego. Uh, it was called a, a rodeo guitar. It was like a, yeah. a, a kind of a really bad knockoff of a Stratocaster, um, <laughs> like you know, Japanese style, and the strings were like a half a feet uh, off, <laughs> half a foot off the bridge, uh, and um, it was, uh, but I, you know, I loved it, you know, because yeah. it was my first uh, way in. My brother made his uh, record player into an amplifier, and so I was playing it, and all that's what started my stepfather hating my my guts. <laughs> <laughs> which which enters a, a little man uh, named Mel Bay because you know uh, he he had these chord books and just like everybody, I think I even used Mel Bay books. But yeah, the, I use Mel Bay. Yeah, gee whiz! You know, I was actually the other day I was uh, in preparing for the interview. I, I did a little bit of research on Mel Bay, and do you know who the guy was? Um, I guess he was a guitar player. Yeah, well, actually, he was a banjo player back in the 40s. He's from Missouri, Melbourne, oh, wow. Melbourne Bay. He was a banjo teacher that got sick of people asking him <laughs> to, to, to please tell my show my kid how to play banjo. So he started writing these books. And, of course, one thing led to another, and Melbourne Bay was got uh, very uh, familiar as Mel Bay. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? 
Wow, that's, uh, I never <laughs> a, heard anything about him. A banjo player, yeah. So <laughs> anyway. I relied on him back then. I even got his record, and I remember I left it out in the sun, and it warped. So every time I would try and tune, it's, it's how I first learned how to tune. So I'd put it on, and it'd be like, you'd play the E string going, I'd be trying to tune to an E, you know. You were tuning like nobody else at that time. Yeah, that's true. Hey, on your web uh, bio, you describe the first song you wrote as a, I think, quote, a pathetic little instrumental. And what what did you call that? Surf Turf. Surf Turf. Surf Turf. How how old were you at that time when you you created that? Oh, I think I was probably about 13 and a half. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I was, was, uh, it was pretty terrible sounding. It would never have made a venture instrumental (laughs) (laughs) well i've also read that the uh, the beatles appearance on the ed sullivan show was was tremendously influential to your desire to become a musician and i mean aside from the beatles who were some of your other musical influences when you were growing up well um i first got interested in music i mean this is really going to date me but i was really really young and um uh i really wasn't quite a teenager yet uh and my, my brother would uh bring home, uh, you know, albums like by, by the Smothers Brothers mm-hmm. yeah. and the Limelighters, and I started listening to that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and then I got into, uh, you know, the Beatles, and then I got into the whole British Invasion thing, you know, I just loved it, loved it. I still think it was one of the highlights, you know, highest times of music, because it's, it's just uh, so many great songs with British Invasion and, you know... We just lost uh, Gordon Waller, who was part of Peter and Gordon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he, and I love Peter and Gordon. Uh, I, I thought they sounded incredible. I, I, they were my Everly brothers when I was yeah. at that age. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I love the Stones. You know, I really got into the Stones. It's, it's odd because I, I went to two Stones concerts, but I never saw the Beatles in concert. Oh, yeah. And I always regretted that, but I, I always thought the Beatles were so far away, it was too hard to get, you know, but the Stones I could get to, you know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I just saw a really great uh, Beatles tribute band the other night, and they performed with the symphony, and uh, they were they were fabulous. But the one thing that they mentioned that I thought was interesting is so much of their music, you know, was was backed by you know uh, a symphony, yet they never performed live with a symphony themselves. Interesting. No, which no, I thought was must interesting. They did a lot of stuff from Sgt. Pepper. And they did. They did a lot of the, the late '60s stuff, early '70s stuff, yeah, fully orchestrated mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was really fantastic. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you were in a, I think uh, you were in a band that you formed called Weeds, right? Weeds. How yeah. old were you when you formed that band, and, and, and who who was in it? My best friend at the time, uh, and it's still a good, really great friend of mine, uh, Mark Quincy. Yeah. Played bass. Uh, you know, and we went through different versions of, of the Weeds. Uh, there was a time when uh, I we were like so enamored of the Stones that I I didn't play guitar. And I just, you know, sang and p- played maracas and tambourine. <laughs> and um, and we didn't have a bass player. Um, Mark played uh, rhythm guitar then, and uh, Keith McCracken, who was uh, our lead guitarist, he played lead. And then Herb Quick was our drummer. And then we had no bass, uh, and we were playing gigs. And then at one point, um, we had a band meeting, and, and it was like, uh, Steve, you're going to have to play guitar. And I was like, no! <laughs> you know, 
kidding. I can't do it. I don't want to play guitar. I'm like enjoying being Mick Jagger, a miniature Mick Jagger. <laughs> My maraca is in tamarind, you know, and uh, and so I had to start playing guitar, and that's how it stayed. So is that the style of music you guys were performing? A lot of Stones, a lot, a lot of, of Stones, yeah. a lot of Beatles, uh, some Hollies. Um, you know, weird songs like Mustang Sally. And mm-hmm. back then, we're so naive. We um, one of the funniest stories is that we entered this battle of the bands. Uh-huh. It was like ten bands, and and you're, you're trying to you know uh, win the you know the whole thing. And uh, we my um, my friend Mark's mother made us uniforms and the whole thing. We got really <laughs> into it. And then finally, and we didn't play that good, but finally when they were announcing the winners, they said, number 10, the Weeds. And I, and I went, we won! <laughs> I thought 10 meant like, uh, like the best. Yes, yeah, so a number 10 on the rating scale, yeah. You know, and then Mark went, no, you stupid idiot. That's, that's, we lost. We're the last. We're last. <laughs> like, oh, oh. Yeah, but what a what a good experience, though, right? I mean, it, you got up, got in front of people, got to compete. <laughs> oh yeah, and then we did another contest where we uh, we actually won second place. That was the Claremont Battle of the Bands. Yeah, you know, I still have a little trophy from that, but, but that was that was cool. See, the, the the lesson here, Stephen, is that people never remember number ten. <laughs> That's right. They don't. They sure don't. I remember we did Judy in Disguise at that. At that, uh, you did that. Judy in disguise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we right. did that song. That was a big hit. Back That's then. cool. <laughs> well, ultimately, after after Weeds, you know, you um, you know, you you were sort of at the very end of the tenure of Weeds. You know, um, you were pointing something pointed you to L.A. You know, and uh, how what, what was the transition between you know the band and and then uh, the decision to to head to L.A. Um, well, actually, one of the members uh, in 12th grade uh, quit. Uh, that was Keith McCracken. He mm-hmm. quit. Uh, and then it left us as three. And we wound up, uh, all three of us wound up going up to L.A. Really? And uh, they stayed at the hotel while I just took my guitar and walked around L.A. trying to, you know, get something going and... I did everything back then. I used a fake English accent, you know. I'd be like, hello, yes, I just got here from Liverpool. And, you know, it's not really accent. accent. But, um, you know, I, I, I would try all sorts of different things with publishers. And finally, I, I met this one publisher who, um, he said, I like you, kid. Keep playing me songs. And so I played him about 30 songs. And... He said, you know, I don't hear a hit. I just don't hear a hit. I'm looking for something commercial, and I was so naive back then. I thought, he wants me to do a commercial? <laughs> you know, I didn't know what he meant by commercial. <laughs> and, and finally, I did this song that I was working on called Daisy Hawkins, and he went, that's a hit. And so I wound up uh, meeting with another publisher, E.H. Morris. Mm-hmm. Did, they did uh, musicals and... and uh, they published Hello Dolly and Bye Bye Birdie and all these you know, mm-hmm. kind of things. And I wound up meeting with them and told them that this guy thought it was a hit. And they went, he thought it was a hit? Maybe it's a hit, you know, and, <laughs> and, and wound up signing me to a, a songwriter um, deal. How old were you then? I was um, 
17 and a half, uh, and then when I, I went back down to San Diego to live with my, my folks. Yeah. I uh, really wasn't getting along with my stepfather at that point. And, um, and then uh, when I turned 18, I went up to L.A. and, and started my, uh, my life as a songwriter guy. So when you were walking the streets in L.A. and playing for people and as many people as you could uh, could muster up there, you you were playing your songs. Yeah, those wow. were my songs. At that point, I had written 200 songs. Wow. And most of them were weird, you know. But really, <laughs> like, I had one song, Belly Flower Birdie, and another song called She Took All My Kumquats. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Hair in Your Enchilada, a big one. <laughs> that, that, that was a hit. I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm sure you heard that. That's, I think Celine Dion is covering that. Hair uh, <laughs> in my enchilada, but yeah, Celine Dion. <laughs> those sound like those sound like song titles I might have heard when I was a kid when I listened to the Doctor Demento show. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, pure Doctor like Demento. That. Yeah, I wrote a lot of silly songs back then. Really weird. Songs. I love the Doctor. <laughs> yeah, he was great. <laughs> my God, my goodness. Well, one person did sort of uh, not sort of you know really know just your work. Art Garfunkel, how to, tell us a story about uh, that, Stephen, as to how how your music uh, sort of caught his ear and, and that sort of um, opened the door. I saw Art just the other night, actually. He was doing great. He just got finished a tour with, uh, with S&G. Um, Simon and Garfunkel, they, they did um, three shows in Japan for 45,000 people. Oh, wow. Show. Wow. Goodness. How about that? It's incredible. That really, uh, that was years I was in L.A. after the, all that, you know, and then finally I got my uh, staff songwriter gig. And then uh, I just kicked around and I did a lot of things. I did a show band. I was in a show band for about eight months. And, hmm. um, and I just did all this different stuff. And then finally my my friend Leah Kunkel, who's, who was a good friend of mine, still a really good friend of mine, um, she... Through her husband Russ Kunkel, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. was doing a session for Art. Uh, she gave him a tape of mine to give to Art, and um, it was uh, you know just a whole bunch of my songs. And he yeah. really loved the songs. And uh, they called me, and I went into the studio, and he was recording. Um, he was working on his album Breakaway back then. Right, you know? right. And uh, he wound up really. Liking the songs, and he wound up recording two of them, and I sang on. I, I actually sang on his hit. Um, I only have eyes for you. I sang a couple little parts. There's this part at the end that gets really uh, sounds kind of wimpy, but I I was go, going. Uh, and you can hear it at the very end of uh, of uh, I only have eyes for you. That's me. Well, his his album also included. I mean, that was a big hit uh, album for him because it included "My Little Town" and uh, "I Only Have Eyes for You." But uh, also a couple of years now. Was that "Looking for the Right One"? Is that the the track? Yeah, that he "Looking is, right? for the Right One" yeah. and uh, "Same Old Tears in a New Background." Mm-hmm. You know, he has such a purist voice. You know, he doesn't have, you know, real lush embellishments of vibrato, but he just such he hits those notes and they're so pure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's, does he still hold his tone? I mean, have you seen him sing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still really good. Really? Huh. He, he's, uh, we've been friends now since way back then. Wow, that's cool. Um, been friends now for 35 years or whatever it is. Can you tell us how many songs that you may have written for him all together now? Oh, he's done, um, 
I think he's done seven or eight songs of mine uh-huh. on on albums. Yeah. Let's see if I can remember, he did uh, on his Lefty album. Mm-hmm. Um, he did King of Tonga, If Love Takes You Away. Yeah. And um, Slow Breakup. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on his Faith for Breakfast album, he did uh, Sail on a Rainbow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On another album, he did um, some album called Up Till Now, something like that. Mm-hmm. He did uh, One Less Holiday. I guess, you know, Barbara Streisand and the Four Tops and so many others uh, were covering uh, some of your songs and, do- and performing some of your songs. And um, that had to be a great compliment to your skill. Yeah, Phoebe Snow did uh, Never Letting Go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, that's what every songwriter loves, is mm-hmm. to have people do their songs. And, you know, sometimes they come out really good, and sometimes they come out like, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's even the ones that come out bad, it's still fun, you know, to have somebody do your songs. Sure, mm-hmm. exactly. In 75, uh, ABC basically uh, offered you a deal. Can you give us right now, I mean, so many years after, but uh, can you give us any details of what that first record deal might have might have been like for, a, a, you know, a, an artist who's landing a big deal? What was it, what was it worth to you back then, or what, what, did, what did it represent? Well, it was, a, it was a, pretty exciting because um, first it was Roy Halley uh, who produced Simon and Garfunkel. He was the one who actually signed me. Oh, I see. So he was the A&R guy back then. Yeah. And then he was going to produce me. And on Careless, he actually started producing the album. And then um, we had a, a, a difference of opinion on a, on a piano player. My friend John Jarvis yeah. wanted him to play on the album. And um, Roy Halley wanted Larry Nectel, who played on the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, which, mm-hmm. you know, he is a great keyboard player, Larry Nectar, he did Bridge Over Troubled Water and everything. But, you know, but I had my loyalties with uh, John Jarvis, uh, who's now a big session player in in Nashville, by the way, and a great great writer on his own. But, you know, I just, uh, I had to have John on the album, so he wound up uh, saying to me, uh, you know, well, maybe we have a difference of opinion here, maybe you should use another producer. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, right. I was scared to death because yeah. I thought, you know, I thought, thought my album wouldn't continue and then, you know, I, I thought my career would be over and, uh, you know, I was really young back then and really excited about doing an album. And so I wound up, um, you know, looking into different producers and I went to Henry Louie, who, was, who worked uh, with Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. on uh, all of her albums and... Uh, it was really the right choice because Henry was terrific to to work with and really a sweet guy. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about some of the performers, some of the musicians you had on that album. As far as stars, I had Garfunkel sang on a couple of songs. Right. Uh, Shaka Khan sang on two songs. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, she sang on Never Letting Go and Little Italy. Uh-huh. And Save It For Any Day, she sang on three songs. And, of course, Eric Clapton played guitar on it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, which was cool. He came by the studio one time, and uh, it was pretty funny. And we we stayed friends. We're still good friends. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also had um, Victor Feldman, who's like a sure vibes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Bennett, mm-hmm. you know, of course, Russ Conkle, Larry Carlton, yeah, uh, Lee Rittenour. 
you know, I just I just read something about Larry Carlton a couple of days ago. Uh, Steely Dan is on tour, and they were just at, in uh, at New York's uh, Beacon Theater last week. And uh, Larry, uh, the last two shows of that set that they did that week, he, Larry was on stage with them. Larry came Holy back God, and performed with cool. Steely Dan for a couple of gigs, and I thought that was <laughs> that would have been a special gig to be at. Oh wow, God, yeah. he's an amazing player. Yeah, because he did a lot of work with those guys back in the seventies. So, but you mentioned Eric Clapton a moment ago, and I was curious to know how long uh, had you known Eric before the album, because you know uh, you're mentioned in his recent uh, autobiography, and you wrote a song together called "Holy Mother." That was on it. That was on his August album in 1986. Right, right. He wound up dropping by the studio because my manager at the time, Bob Evans, said, "There's this funny guy that you should meet." You know, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so Clapton came by with Patty Boyd, and uh, I, I was to tell you the truth. At the time, I was more excited to meet Patty because I was like, <laughs> "Oh my God, this is Patty Boyd." Uh-huh. She was like married to George Harrison, and she was the Beatles. And right, right. Oh my God! You know, I was, and she looked great too. You know, <laughs> and uh, I was, I was like really uh, freaked out to meet Patty Boyd. But you know, also he was, you know, Eric Clapton. So um, he wound up uh, just coming by because I, you know, he thought I'd be this funny guy or something, and he was thought it would be like a joke kind of session or something. I don't know. And then he wound up really liking the album and really enjoying it. And he wound up, uh, you know, inviting me to stay at his... Uh, it, when I went to England, um, after the doing the album, uh, he invited me to, to hang out with him uh, at, uh, at his uh, mansion there. Very Those cool. Were fun days. <laughs> hey, uh, apart from your hits on uh, on and on and save it for a rainy day, there there are other some great tunes on that album. Also, there's sinking in, in ocean of tears, careless little Italy, and uh, and one more night. Um, in preparation for this first album that you recorded, how, how long and what was the span of time that you had to to work on that project? Um, I think it took about three months, mm-hmm. and then uh, probably a month to get it all together as far as mastering and everything. That was at the old A&M studios. Mm-hmm. I, I, on Careless, you know, I do this trombone thing. Yeah. I go... Right. And I was doing that, and Quincy Jones was working in the next studio... And he burst in, and he went, "Hey, man, who's that great trombone player?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "It's me. I'm doing the." He was like, "Oh man!" You know, there's a there's a, there's a band called Take Six, and Mark Kibble and the guys, they actually do. Uh, the trombone in, in in harmony. I think it's like five or six part harmony. You've got to hear them do that, that stuff. Sometime. I love take six. Uh, they they said blowing the trombones and man, it's it's really cool. <laughs> wow, that's a great great idea. To do that <laughs> when uh, when your second album Bish was released in '78, you were you were really in demand at that point. You had a, a famous cameo in the movie Animal House where. Well, yeah. John Belushi and his toga bust your you know your guitar over your head, and word has it that that guitar is is still uh, hanging in your house somewhere. Is that true? Yeah, it's in a plaque by my front door. <laughs> Are you serious? Really? <laughs> the whole the whole cast signed it. Actually. Did they really? That's yeah, great. Yeah. Well, speaking of Animal House, you you wrote the th- you wrote the theme to it too. The that Animal House. Uh, yeah, theme. I wrote it, sang it. That's that's me. 
I'm doing the high voice of, yeah. let me tell you about some friends I know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, I was just curious, how did you hook up with John Landis and get involved in this film? I met John Landis on the day of the L.A. earthquake in 71. So I'd known him, like, for many years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was always talking about trying to make a movie and do this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was in his uh, other movie, Kentucky Fried Movie. Right, um, right. I'm in that too. I'm in about four of, I'm in four of his movies, and uh, we we were friends back then. We're not really friends now, but mm-hmm. we were friends then. Well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you had that close connection to films, not only uh, from a musical perspective, Animal House, that is, but uh, like you said, you've made you know those appearances in like Blues Brothers, I think, a Kentucky Fried Movie, and and. Uh, all appearing in some shape or form as a character known as Charming. Yeah, right, Charming. What, what, what always was... a charming guitar player, charming state trooper. Uh, that was that was the, the inside joke. Yeah. Okay, I was I was curious to know what was the inside joke on that. I mean, is this is that was just your role? You were meant to be for those parts, right? <laughs> it just stuck. You know, it, it just, just stuck. It's charming. Stuck. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's great. Yeah, hey, I love being charming. <laughs> There are worse things, I'm sure. <laughs> I wish my girlfriend thought I was charming. <laughs> I, I actually did another movie called Someone to Love uh-huh. um, that was with uh, Orson Welles and Sally Kellerman. Um, that, that's kind of, uh, I don't know if many, many people know about that movie. It's a Henry Jaglum movie. Well, this is, this is a side topic, but uh, John Landis produced the famous Thriller video. And uh, did you work uh, in conjunction with that video? Did you work with Michael Jackson at all? Uh, I didn't actually work with him. Uh-huh. I, I talked to him. Mm-hmm. He actually, what's funny is he actually told me on the set that On and On was the first record he ever bought. Really? Which was really cool, yeah. That is um, interesting. Then I took a picture of him and me together, mm-hmm. which is on my MySpace. Um, oh, I'll have to check that out. I didn't yeah, see really. that. There's that bit where they're watching on the screen some scary movie. Uh-huh. And I'm I'm in the audience. Uh, I'm on the left side in a yellow shirt. Huh. Oh, really? Le- yellow shirt. I'm me with glasses. <laughs> I, I don't think I have a beard. Hopefully, you're still getting royalties from that. <laughs> I don't think. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not <just> that one. <laughs> you know, on Bish, you were able to work with uh, a couple really neat people. I mean, one is. Of course, uh, orchestrator uh, Marty Page on looking for the right one. Oh and, yeah, he's great. And even a couple of uh, of our past guests uh, who were actually on Stevie Wonder's Wonder Band. Uh, we just got in, done interviewing Michael Sambello, and in our we've also uh, talked with Greg Fillingaines on Everybody Needs Love. Um, did you bring them to the table? What was that connection with Marty and and the guys? That was through an arranger named Gene Page. You know, I had this concept. We actually did two songs in, uh, for that album, and one I never put out called Sentimental. Mm-hmm. And Greg Fillingaines played on it, and uh, he was really young, you know. And uh, he also played on um, Losing Myself in You. He played on this one little thing he did. Right. And uh, he was a wild guy back then. Now he's all, you know, well-mannered and... He's got a kid. He's had he's got a, a kid. He's tamed down. You know, he's, he's really he's really a great guy, though. I really like him a lot. What a musician, huh? Yeah, a phenomenal musician. Phenomenal. Jeez, yeah. And uh, Michael Cimbello is incredible. Mm-hmm. 
really, really talented guy. You know, at, at what point do you actually, you know, out of all the songs, and, and chances are, you know, you're, you're a writer at heart. You're a writer's writer. So, you know, what's the daily grind for you? You know, when you, do, you, do you write every day or do you have to sit down and write? What's your, what's your process of when you start churning out some tunes and some lyrics? Some some writers like Randy Newman and Jimmy Webb they like you know wake up at like eight eight o'clock and mm-hmm. they go to you know work and they work on their stuff all day and that yeah. kind of thing. I just I kind of do it leisurely. Um, work on songs like late at night, uh, usually late at night. It depends if there's nothing on television. <laughs> I'm like very unstructured. <laughs> So, Very so, unstructured, but I, I write best on assignment. You know, if somebody said, "Well, we have, we need a song for this movie." You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, that's when I really, really? Uh, have more of a work ethic. You know? right. So, what was the last song that you've penned? Well, actually, uh, it was. Um, it, it's one of the ones that I gave you. Um, mm-hmm. It's a song I wrote with a, a really great writer named Jude Johnstone. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's called uh, "My Little Waterloo." It's. it's it's okay. kind of pressing, but cool. it, I think a lot of people could relate to it. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, this is one of the tracks you sent over to us. So let's pause for a moment and take a listen to a sample of My Little Waterloo. Sample of My Little Waterloo from today's guest, Stephen Bishop. 
Yeah, I'm going to jump uh, back again to your uh, an album you released in 1986 called Sleeping with Girls, and it was I, I think it was only released in Asia and Hong Kong specifically. Yeah. And uh, as as you know, the album has been bootlegged, and copies have been sold on eBay for around five hundred dollars each, and it's it's <laughs> and it's not listed on your website's discography. No, it wasn't an official thing. Oh, it was not. Okay. It, it was just uh, I was I I just put together those songs. It was kind of a combination of. Uh, the songs I threw together, um, you know, at one point I recorded in England with Gus Dudgeon, uh, that Elton John's producer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was never, you know, I wound up putting almost all the songs on different albums mm-hmm. that uh, with better, you know, mixes and better uh, mastering and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, that was a, you know what that was for? It was for, to promote they gave me a hell of a lot of money to do that, and it was to promote uh, the movie Mickey and Maude. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Hong Kong. Yeah. Gotcha. So that song, you know, Something New in My Life, which I think is on there, was a big hit in Asia. Wow. Well, I think you had some really serious players on this album, again, like player, people like Sting and, and uh, Eric Clapton and Phil Collins. I mean, how did this... Yeah, that, they won, I wound up putting the same song with a better mix and a better mastering on my uh, Bowling in Paris album. Okay, gotcha. okay, okay, okay. All right. Which is on Atlantic. That's right, that's okay. right. That was the U.S. Version. Yeah, that you're talking about Hall Light. Yeah, right, okay, right. that's okay. right. Yeah, because okay. before it was leaving the Hall Light on, and then, of course, this new one was, was Hall Light. That's right. Right, right. That's Follow You, okay. It is amazing how how much money is that people will pay to get that girls <laughs> out. Well, it's funny, Michael, last time, our last interview with Michael Cimbello, one of his albums, I don't remember which one, Eddie, but yeah. um, he was mentioning that he, he actually contacted someone in uh, overseas in Asia to, to buy. It was somebody who had his album up on eBay for like $250, and he, he wanted to buy it from them. And, and uh, he said, hey, can you just give me a copy? I'm Michael Sabello. And he said, I don't care who you are. Pay me, <laughs> pay me $250. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> he, he couldn't get a copy of his own album. <laughs> wow, that's funny. So anyway, I thought that was that's, funny. That's interesting. You know, we, we briefly mentioned Phil Collins a moment ago, and, and the song Separate Lives popped into my head. And it's a song that Eddie and I wanted to chat with you about. Tell us a little bit as a songwriter, Stephen, you know, how does, you know, b- misery and lovesickness and love, how does that feed into the songwriting, the emotion of it, you know? Well, it's um, it's really much better for me to write when I'm, you know, missing someone or mm-hmm. in love with someone uh, the, in, from the past or, you know, some, some miserable situation mm-hmm. of, of, of being spurned, you know, or, or, or always looking for love and, and missing love. That, that, I, that idea always seems to work. But mm-hmm. for me, when I, when I am in love, I just don't have the, very rarely write songs like that. You know, it's yeah. just like, I got love. It's incredible. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. It I'm so in love. Wow, what a feeling. <laughs> Sounds like a commercial, right? <laughs> yeah, I just don't yeah. normally uh, yeah, exactly. have those feelings, which, of course, you know, I have a girlfriend now, and she's 
like, where's my song, you know? <laughs> you should sing her the one you just sang to us. Yeah, really. We'll record it. And now that it's recorded, we've recorded it here. We'll just send you a file, and you can just play it back to her. <laughs> right. Well, that, that would come in handy. <laughs> that sounds good, man. Yeah, so let's take another break and listen to a sample of Stephen's version of Separate Lives. Uh, this particular version is from his Brazilian album, Romance in Rio. You called me from the room in your hotel All full of romance Someone that you'd met Telling me how sorry you were Leaving so soon That you miss me sometimes you're alone in your room Do I feel lonely too? You have no right To ask me how I feel You have no right To speak to me so kind Separate Lives from today's guest, Stephen Bishop. Our uh, Chicago correspondent, Brian Pearson, he uh, he has a question for you. He says, Stephen, um, you were great friends with, uh, obviously, the, the late Kenny Rankin. Oh, and, yeah, I know. Uh, I always uh, thought that you guys were from the same mold of songwriting, and he wants to know about your friendship with Kenny. Rest his heart. Well, originally, I, I was very influenced by Kenny. Um his his Silver Morning album uh, never left my you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. phonograph back then um, phonograph turntable I think. <laughs> um, and 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 we wound up becoming friends uh, through the years. Uh, we, uh, at first, um, it was it was kind of a funny thing because um, he recorded. He was looking for songs. And I, I wound up going there and meeting him, and uh, I gave him on and on, because he was doing this album with Don Costa, this uh, string album, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he recorded on and on first. And then when it came time for me to record, I, I put it on my album, but I didn't think it was going to be a hit, because he told me, don't give me anything that's going to be released, uh, you know, as a single. 
because I want to use it as my single. So he had his single come out, and then mine just really, you know, took off and, and, and went over his single, and he got upset with me. Hmm. And um, one time we were playing baseball on this, or softball league or something, and, and I was out in the field, and he was, with, he was out there, and he was like, boy, he was mad at me. But this was a different <laughs> Kenny back then. He, was, he, 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 um, he could lose his temper and get upset, but he evolved into this wonderful guy who, who um, we were friends for many, many years. Uh, after that, uh, like 20 years, and uh, we, we hung out and uh, we, we went to uh, Japan together to do this, to do the Blue Note, uh-huh. and uh, we were like, you know, we became great friends, and he, he, he just, he was so kind of, you know, um, past all that early, you know, anger stuff, he, he just really evolved into this. A wonderful person, you know, and uh, a great human being. And I tell you, it, it's just it hit me hard, you know, when when this happened recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even know he he was sick or anything. Sure. Exactly. Uh, last time I talked to him was about three months ago. He asked me asked me if I would testify in some court case for him or something, and I said sure. Um, but uh, we were always you know, going to get together for sushi, you know. Mm. And it's like, let's get together for sushi. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. You know, we just yeah. never got around to doing it in this last year. And uh, I really uh, I really feel bad because he was, he was really a special human being and an amazing mm. talent. Yeah, he'll be missed for sure. He will. He yeah. really will. Well, thanks for sharing that with us about Kenny. And um, I wanted to also ask you, you know, a few years ago you released uh, an album, and I know I'm going to... I, I know I'm not going to be able to pronounce this right because my Portuguese is not good. But it's how do you pronounce that? S a u d a d e. Sadaji. Okay. Sadaji. <laughs> Come on, Rick. Come I'm on. sorry. I just. But, but that but was now a, it's called romance in Rio because nobody can pronounce Sadaji. Yeah. <laughs> but that was that was a collection of uh, bossa influenced versions of many of your previously released songs, such as you know on and on and save it for a rainy day. And right. I was wondering, right. you know, what inspired you to create these arrangements, and have you always been influenced by this style of music? Well, to be honest, I didn't do the arrangements. It was done by uh, Oscar Castro Neves. Oh, okay. He was uh, the guitar player for uh, Carlos Jobim. Uh huh. So he's like really got the credibility, and he yeah. He did an amazing job of arranging the album. It really, I'm really proud of it. It's, it's a great album, I think, uh, and uh, it's also because of the people involved. Uh, Peter Benetta, uh, who co-produced the album, was just uh, great talent. What was your question? I was just asking about your influence in that style of music. If you had uh, always been influenced by, you know, this mm. this bossa style, or, or you know, obviously you must have been to create an entire album. But I was just curious about your influence in that. You know, I found myself listening to it a lot, you know, just uh, when I have the basic femme fatale uh, mm-hmm. who is spending the night, mm-hmm. um, it always was, like, really great uh, to have on, you know, to kind of warm things up. Mm-hmm. Just really enjoy that music. Well, we're curious to know um, what kinds of things you're working on right now. I mean, what, what other uh, projects are, are in the works for you at this moment? Well, um, mostly I've been sorting out my stock drawer. 
That was a, that was a good project. <laughs> well, when will that project end, there, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> and I've just been mostly working on new songs. You know, I don't have any, you know, amazing things coming up. I mean, I went to Japan uh, and uh, did some shows over there in Osaka and uh, Tokyo, and and with my friend Jim Wilson, and uh, that was that was fun. And that was I can't believe the. Fans over there are just hardcore. Yeah. They, they have like every album. They right. I mean, really amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a different scene in Japan and in Europe. I mean, we've talked to so many of our guests about you know just just how the music tastes of of uh, you know you know listeners in Japan and 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 in many parts of Europe are so much different than what we're used to here. Oh yeah. Are you still performing live? Do you do? Is there a chance that we could you know uh, listeners could ever catch you performing live anywhere anytime yeah, soon? Yeah. I'm going to do some dates towards the end of the year. Cool. Oh, very good. Mostly West Coast, or do you travel around? Well, I haven't gotten them yet, but we're talking about San Diego right now. And yeah. I actually just got asked to do uh, Lisa Lisa Lampanelli's, um, you know, the comic? Yeah, yeah. She's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, she's getting married. She just asked me to do her wedding. <laughs> oh, very cool. I think it might be you. That'll be very nice. <laughs> As long as she doesn't doesn't do a number on me or anything, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully it doesn't turn into a roast. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Right, exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't want that. <laughs> hey, Stephen. Before we end our interview here, um, let's take a listen to one more track. This is a track called "The Girl in the Orange Sweater," which comes from your demo album one. And and tell us a little bit about this track. The song uh, "Girl in the Orange Sweater" came about because I just had this thing of just. You know, thinking orange sweater, orange sweater. I get really into that kind of thing every so often. I'm just getting an idea in my head. Uh, usually I write from titles. Okay. Uh, and for some reason I just had this orange sweater thing, you know. Okay. And I wound up writing it with Christopher Ward uh, about this kind of anonymous girl that you, the guy falls in love with. Okay, here is a sample of The Girl in the Orange Sweater. I watch her through revolving doors Through the windows of trains On the stairway to the second floor On a crowded street Covered with rain She rushes by Not call out her She disappears So I wait for her By the cafe light Where strangers meet The end of the night And I wait for her To come to me The girl in the Accidentally took my seat Pulled off her white gloves I was captured by 
And that was The Girl in the Orange Sweater from our guest today, Stephen Bishop. Well, Stephen, we really appreciate all the time you've given us, and uh, it was it was great to touch on your career and, and talk about all the projects, all the amazing work you've done, and, and uh, we appreciate your time, and I know our listeners do as well. Very cool. Stephen, thanks again, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we also want to uh, thank Scott Gross for hooking us up with you today, Stephen. Absolutely. Scott, thanks a lot for uh, for your help on this. Yeah, Scott's been working on uh, trying to get us uh, hooked up with you for a while, and everything succeeded, so we really mm-hmm. appreciate it. I appreciate it so much, and have a, have a good one, and we'll be in touch, okay? Take care. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Stephen Bishop for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to join us again on September 7th as Inside Music Cast welcomes Steve Percaro. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.